Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Ayala. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop, Progress in the Treatment of Myodysplastic Syndromes, or MDS. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, as well as blood cancer organizations. And we are delighted to have so many of you on the call today. And I think it's because of your interest and um, our collaboration um, that we have so many of you. You have over 410 participants on the call today. And you come from all over the United States and from, from uh, both uh, rural and urban and suburban areas. And we also have international participants from India and the United Kingdom. So a bit of a global call as well. Now, today's program is supported by the Celgene Corporation and the Diana Napoli Fund. And we thank them for their support of the program today. Now, we have the best speakers um, on our program today, so I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Gail Robos. Dr. Robos is Director, Clinical and Translational Leukemia Programs, Professor of Medicine, Wild Cornell Medical College, the New York Presbyterian Hospital. Dr. Robos is going to present an overview of myelodysplastic syndromes, or MDS, diagnosis and staging, standard of care, and key questions to ask your healthcare team. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Robos. Thank you so much for the introduction and also for the invitation to participate uh, today. I um, really enjoy actually doing these types of conferences specifically about myelodysplastic syndrome or MDS because this can be such a complicated and overwhelming diagnosis for patients and families to hear about but I actually think it's great that there are opportunities like this that are specifically directed toward trying to expand the knowledge and education of patients and families so that they know how to really approach their appointments with their doctors. So I've been given the impossible task of going over pretty much everything you want to know about um, an overview of MDS, diagnosis, uh, the standard of care, and then key questions in the next 13 to 15 minutes or so. So here we go. The first thing is that I think it's terribly daunting to have uh, a name given to your condition that is called something like myelodysplastic, which nobody really knows what it means initially. And they start looking it up, and all of a sudden, there's a deluge of information. So first of all, let's just break down the title. Myelo actually means bone marrow, and dysplastic means that the cells are looking funny under the microscope. So it's really referring to the morphology or appearance of cells under the microscope. And the fact that it's called a syndrome is very important because that really gets to the heart of there being a constellation of issues that might be going on in this disease in such a way that one person's MDS might be very different from another's even though the diagnosis is the same. 
So one of the first things that I like to tell patients is that if you go into an office where there are many patients treated with MDS and you start talking to your the person sitting next to you in the waiting room, you may both have MDS, but you may be hearing very different things about signs and symptoms and even treatments. So to realize that this disease is one name that covers a whole lot of subsections, which we're going to talk about a little bit. Now, myelo, bone marrow, the bone marrow is a very important organ in the body that is the factory that makes blood cells. It makes white blood cells that fight infection, red blood cells that carry around oxygen and help to give you energy, and platelets, which are little tiny cells that help you clot if you're bleeding or if you get a cut. And fundamentally, myelodysplastic syndromes are um, diseases of the bone marrow, which are a type of bone marrow failure. Usually, one or more of the normal cells um, that, 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 or the more normal cell lines that are produced by the bone marrow are affected in patients with MDS. And very frequently, what happens is that an abnormality is noted in routine blood works or a routine CBC, also called a complete blood count, that is taken at the doctor's office. And that will usually result in a little bit of a hunt for why there is an abnormality. So very frequently, somebody will have either a low white blood cell count or a low red blood cell count or a low platelet count or sometimes more than one cell line will be running low. The doctor may notice this and repeat the test again in a few weeks or try to come up with an explanation for why, why something is running low. But if there is no explanation identified, then the patient is often referred to a hematologist for further evaluation. So I can tell you that many patients actually have this type of abnormality identified in the context of a routine physical exam or a routine checkup. So there might actually be no symptoms at all, just routinely notified uh, of the, the blood abnormality. But it's also possible that patients are presenting to their doctor specifically because of symptoms. And the signs and symptoms that go along with MDS are often related specifically to problems of these blood um, uh, of these uh, blood cells. So, for example, if your white blood cells that fight infection are running low, you might be going into the doctor saying, hey, I don't know what's going on. I feel like I've had bronchitis five times in the last few months, or I've had a skin infection multiple times. I've never had infections before. What's going on? Another common problem associated with low blood counts would be fatigue. Very, very frequently we hear that patients are presenting to their doctor for evaluation because they have fatigue. I'm tired. I don't have enough energy as I used to. I can't do as much exercise as I used to. What's going on? Similarly, you might have problems related to a low platelet count. I'm bruising or my gums are bleeding when I'm brushing my teeth or how come I'm getting nosebleeds? I never had this before. So the signs and symptoms of your bone marrow not working could lead to this type of evaluation. And also, you may not have anything at all bothering you and just the abnormal counts are noted. When you go into a hematologist for further evaluation, typically a complete blood count or blood that's drawn um, from a regular uh, venipuncture stick is not enough. 
So we have to dig deeper and actually look at the factory or look at the bone marrow itself. So bone marrow morphology or looking at what's going on in the factory is the key to diagnosis of myelodysplastic syndrome. And basically, there are different components of the bone marrow test that are very, very important to keep in mind. So one is actually the presence of dysplasia or the presence of abnormal appearing cells under the microscope. But in addition to that, there are uh, specific components that your doctor may refer to that are a little bit more complicated. One is called the number of blast cells. So blasts are early white blood cells that are starting to form in the bone marrow that usually are present in numbers of about 0 to 1 or 2 percent in the bone marrow. But if they are present in more numbers than that, what that suggests is that these white blood cells are not growing up normally. And just to put it in perspective, if you have 20% of these abnormal white blood cells or blasts in the marrow, that is consistent with a diagnosis of acute leukemia. So usually numbers between 3 and 20% blasts are what's found in myelodysplastic syndrome. Now, here I've done it. I said that bad L word or leukemia, it is not the case that all patients with MDS progress to leukemia. In fact, most patients with MDS do not develop leukemia and never get there. But I have to tell you, for everybody who wanders into my office, the minute they hear about blast cells and the minute they hear these percentages that I've just given, the panic sets in about leukemia because while people don't typically know what MDS is, they do have, they have heard of leukemia and they know that it's a bad thing that they don't want. So do keep in mind that the percentage of blast cells is an important part of the pathology report that will be related to some of the treatments that might be offered for you, but it does not mean necessarily that you will ever develop acute leukemia. The second component of the pathology report, or actually third, so the first is going to be the morphology, the second is going to be the blasts, then they will also tell you about something called cytogenetics or chromosomes. And this test specifically can be very helpful to try to understand how aggressive the myelodysplastic syndrome is a, and B, whether or not there might be a specific response pattern to certain medications that could be anticipated. So chromosomes can sometimes be normal. They can sometimes be very abnormal, and they can sometimes be in between with perhaps one or two different abnormalities. And it's very important to ask your treating doctor, what did my chromosomes from my bone marrow test show, and what does it mean? What does this finding mean for me? Now, another component that is done with increasing frequency in the last several years is something called molecular genetics or mutations. And these are mutations that can be done in something called a sequencing panel that is often sent as part of the evaluation um, initially of the diagnosis of MDS. And while we don't always know specifically what to do with these results, from next-generation sequencing tests, we do know that in some scenarios, the identification of certain mutations can be helpful in treatment planning 
and possibly helpful in directing you towards specific clinical trials. So you have to be ready for it that it's possible your doctor didn't send sequencing and your doctor might tell you, well, we don't really know what to do with those results anyway, so I didn't send that test. It's kind of true that sometimes we really don't have additional information that can be definitely helping you just because you had a sequencing test done. But I can tell you that in most um, academic centers, it is standard of care to have sequencing done as part of the diagnostic evaluation just to make sure that there is not additional information from that type of panel that can be directly of help to you. Now, all of these together are going to put together um, a, a not really staging, so it's not stage one, two, three, four like in solid tumors, but it allows a risk stratification to be put together to try to decide what level of care is going to be needed for you. Is your disease one that is likely to be a more aggressive one that is resulting in more um, significant early failure of the bone marrow in which agents like, for example, azacitidine or dicitabine or even possibly stronger chemotherapies might be needed for you? Or is your disease falling into a category that is going to be more of a low risk for acute um, uh, complications? Maybe we're just trying to give you drugs to boost up your bone marrow function, improve your low blood counts, for example, with growth factors, either erythropoietic growth factors or, or drugs that are designed to stimulate the marrow production of, for example, red cells. So there is going to be a diagnostic evaluation that lets you know, is my disease going to hang out and mainly cause me trouble with low blood counts that they're going to try to give me drugs to improve my marrow function? Or is my disease a more aggressive one where it's not going to be possible to just improve marrow function? We really might need to start doing a hard reset, if you will, on the marrow with more intensive therapies and even possibly apply what is the um, only cure that we know of for MDS currently, which is a stem cell transplant. Now, the range of disease treatments for MDS makes people quite amazed because if everything from observation to a stem cell transplant is possibly the right treatment, that's quite confusing for patients because they certainly understand that sitting around and doing nothing is pretty different from getting a bone marrow transplant. But this is why it is so important to have a very comprehensive initial examination and uh, pathology reporting done and to really understand with your healthcare team, what do I have and how aggressive is it and which one of the treatments ranging from just supporting the marrow function all the way to stem cell transplant might be right for me. So before I turn over the treatment questions to Dr. Tebas, I think just to summarize where I'm coming from, you really, really do want to take that extra time to fully understand what are the components of your pathology report, 
What do they tell you about the likely aggressiveness of your disease and why? And then the key question in terms of asking your healthcare team in order to understand or even begin to understand the treatment discussion is why are these treatments being suggested? What is the goal? Is the goal not to try to get rid of this disease but to improve my marrow function as much as possible? Or is there actually the possibility for more intensive treatment or treatment that has curative intent? Is that a possibility? Just to give you food for thought, most patients with MDS do not undergo stem cell transplant. And the reasons for that are not necessarily because they're not necessarily what you think, that perhaps you're older and you're thinking you're too old for a transplant. Not so. Often the treatment is applied because we think that you're going to live longer and better with a lower intensity type of treatment than with one which is more aggressive. The way to decide which treatment is best for you is based on a very thorough understanding of your initial diagnosis and pathology reports. And with that, I'll turn it over to my colleague, Dr. Tibetz, who will talk a little bit more in detail about what those treatments are and how to make treatment-related decisions. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Robos. That was really outstanding and really set the stage for the entire program. Very comprehensive and really excellent. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. And our next speaker is Dr. Oral Tibbis, and Dr. Tibbis is Director, Clinical Leukemia Program, Lauren Isaac Perlmutter Cancer Center, Associate Professor, NYU School of Medicine, Scholar in Clinical Research, Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, NYU Langone Health. And Dr. Tibbis is going to address new and emerging treatment approaches, the role of clinical trials, tips to manage symptoms and side effects, and next steps after treatment. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Tibbis. Well, uh, thank you very much. Um, it's a pleasure for me um, as well to be on this call. Um, I've been working with Caroline and her team for for many years, I would say, in many, many um, conferences, and this is one of the most uh, gratifying and satisfying conference um, because we can really reach out to a lot of uh, people in the, in the U.S. as well as internationally, and um, the questions we get are always excellent questions, and I really enjoy this program. And um, Gail is a esteemed colleague of mine, and you know I thought you would talk about the standard of care treatments, uh, which I you know was hoping you would do, but you know I think I can incorporate this into new and emerging treatments. As Dr. Roberts very, um, very um, expertly laid out, um, there are many different um, MDS subtypes, and we try to group them. Once a patient comes in, once we have established the diagnosis of an MDS. It's really important to know, to look at the blood counts. Is, um, are the platelets affected only or the white blood cells or, or does the patient have anemia or are two or three of those blood counts affected? In addition, how low are the counts? That's also an important feature. And then we look in the bone marrow, um, how many, well, what is the percentage of blasts and how advanced is the disease in the bone marrow as well? What's crucially important is what I call um, all of those molecular or genetic or genomic tests. Those are actually, uh, what we do routinely is uh, a chromosome analysis. I explain it to my patients this way. Every cell has, if you may remember from your biology, has chromosomes in, in, in the cell. And we look at those chromosomes and see if there's any abnormalities in the MDS cells. We also look for certain mutations. Those are abnormalities in individual genes um, 
that usually have as a consequence that the genes don't function um, normally anymore. And I would like to stress most of the times those genomic or molecular abnormalities are only found in the MDS cells. Because patients ask me all the time, am I abnormal? Is it a genetic disease? It's usually not a genetic disease. It's only those MDS cells that have acquired the ability to alter their genes or their chromosomes that gives them an advantage to grow quicker than the normal BOMA or normal blood cells. So once we do those cytogenetic and molecular profiling, we get the information that help us further group or risk stratify patients with MDS. And as broad groups, I would say they fall into the low risk, intermediate, and high risk categories. And those are criteria where we combine clinical information, blood counts, as well as those genetic and molecular tests together. And that helps us direct the treatments. For example, often the low-risk MDS patients, often they're anemic. They have low red blood cells. The red blood cells carry the oxygen. Those patients are tired, fatigued. So there is actually treatments like um, erythropoietin or Procrit or Darbopoietin. Those are actually the red cell hormones, as, as I call them very often. Like we have a thyroid hormone, we have estrogen, progesterone, and we have testosterone. And there's a red cell hormone, which is called um, erythropoietin, that stimulates the red cells. And there are criteria, for example, if a patient has still a normal or low erythropoietin level, meaning the patient has a level of the red cell hormone in the normal ranges, there's a good chance that patients with a low-risk MDS may respond to this growth factor hormone, which is called erythropoietin or Procrit, for example, is one of those, those brands. And those patients can have very good responses for a long period of time. For patients, um, let me switch over to the more advanced or the, the high-risk um, MDS patients, how we call them. And I will not go into the details what a high-risk score for those patients are, but as you can, you know, as it sounds from, 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 from the name high-risk, those patients are at higher risk of, A, the disease getting worse more quickly, as well as the risk of an MDS transforming, meaning progressing into an acute leukemia. So for those patients, um, we generally have two treatment goals. Often those patients do need treatments because their blood counts are very low. And again, this can be one or two or all three of what we call those blood cell lineages, platelets, red cells, or the white blood cells. And we can treat those patients with so-called lower intensity treatments or hypomethylating agents. Those are medications and drugs like, for example, azacytidine or dicytabine, and the brand names being Videsa or Dacogen. Those are medications that try to alter or remodel or switch back the, the genes within those MDS cells to throw on the normal program within those cells that they can become normal cells again. And those treatments can be very effective for patients and um, unfortunately do not work in every patient. For patients that are very advanced or high-risk MDS that are younger, where we see a lot of those blast cells, so that's a higher risk of the MDS progressing into an acute leukemia, we may sometimes, or if a patient is eligible, choose an allogeneic stem cell transplantation or a bone marrow transplantation because the stem cells sit or live in the bone marrow. So for those patients, a bone marrow transplantation may be a curative option. So essentially would... Uh, if a patient has an advanced high-risk MDS um, based on 
molecular as well as the clinical features and a lot of blast cells and the patient is younger and we can talk about what younger means often at 70 to 75 age, uh, years of age. Those patients may be evaluated for an upfront stem cell transplantation. So you may see an MDS physician and that physician said, well, you have a higher risk MDS and let me refer you on to one of my transplant colleagues or sometimes MDS physicians do the transplants themselves as well. So stem cell or bone marrow transplantation has a role in MDS patients if it's an advanced MDS and uh, the patient is in good shape and could potentially handle such an intensive treatment. Um, and then a careful evaluation needs to be done because the timing of a transplant is very essential in MDS. If you transplant a patient too early, too soon in their disease course, you may actually do more harm. But of course, you don't want to transplant the patient with the potentially curative treatment too late in the disease course if the disease of the MDS is already taking off too quickly. And there again, scores and physicians, and we have guidelines at what point we would recommend a transplantation for a patient. I should say that patients who had developed an MDS after previous treatment, for example, for breast cancer with chemotherapy or a lymphoma treatment with chemotherapy or even radiation for prostate cancer, and I've seen those patients, we call these secondary MDS. Those are MDSs that are arising out of a previous treatment with a chemotherapy or radiation therapy. In those instances, we would um, recommend a patient a transplant if they qualify and if they are a potential candidate. So now let me switch to the intermediate group of patients. <clears throat> those patients may benefit from a transplant, but often or sometimes it's too soon for a transplant for those patients. Another factor to consider is that MDS is often a disease of older patients. So many of the patients are 70, 75, or even older. In those patients, a transplant would be a very invasive and procedure and, and, and treatment option, and they may not tolerate it well. We may do more harm with the transplant than giving him some other therapy. This is when a patient then needs a treatment. This is where those hypomethylating agents like azacytidine, that's Vidazer, or dicytabine, that's Dacogen, come into play. And I mentioned earlier, a lot of patients respond, but unfortunately not all the patients. So approximately, I quote my patients that, you know, you probably have a good chance or half of the patient have a good chance or complete response or an excellent response to the treatment. This means there's still a number of patients that do not respond to the treatment. Today, unfortunately, we quite don't know yet which are all the patients or who are the patients that will respond to, this treat to these treatments and who are the patients that will not respond. As Dr. Robas mentioned, we... These days, we do a lot of um, sequencing and molecular analysis, so essentially looking at the genomic structures of those MDS cells. So we do have some idea which patients may respond better to those hypomethylating agents and which patients have, may not respond as well. So, and... Um, most of the physicians should be familiar, or if you come to an MDS uh, treatment center, um, those tests are done routinely. Um, after, or there are, since not all the patients are responding, unfortunately, and patients do progress over time um, to their treatment, there are several experimental therapies out there. And these days, we try to develop investigational therapies based on the genetic and molecular abnormalities that we find in the MDS cells. 
I think giving you a list of those medications and treatments that are out there that are investigational, I think it um, would be beyond this program right now, but you can ask those questions. So there are new therapies in the lower risk um, MDS stage where patients are anemic and um, that have shown good responses once this Procrit or this erythropoietin stimulating agents hormones don't work anymore. There are also combination trials where you try to add an investigational treatment, for example, to azacitidine or decidabine in order to make this treatment more efficacious and better. So it's okay for patients um, if they see a doctor or if they treat an MDS center, um, if a physician suggests them as treatment as a hypomethylating agent azacitidine and says, hey, good, good treatment options, but here's an investigational medication or drug that I would like to add to azacitidine or decidabine in order to improve your response. I think those are, we always have a trial of this kind available at our center, and I think Gail as well and other centers as well, in trying to improve the outcome. And this is the role of the clinical trial. Since we have good therapies, but there's still room for improvement, we try to combine and we try to, by better understanding the genetics of MDS, try to develop new rational combinations. Um, one big problem is when patients, we call them the HMA failure, those are the hypomethylating agent failure patients. And we may have, unfortunately, some of the patients at the call today. So when azacitidine or decidabine stop working, and we unfortunately see this a lot of patients, unfortunately, there is no second-line standard of care treatment except potentially a stem cell transplantation if one of those um, hypermethylating agents stop working. And then a cli clinical trial, again, would play a role um, in, in treating those patients if they're not a transplant candidate and azacitidine has stopped working. And again, we, we try to do a, gen um, a next generation sequencing or sequence the genes or ex at least those genes that are involved in the MDS um, and then try to make our decisions. But unfortunately, we do not know all of the complex molecular underpinnings of MDS, and we do not have therapies available for each of those genetic abnormalities. Patients with MDS obviously suffer many symptoms, as Dr. Robos mentioned. This can be because they are anemic and they are tired and fatigued. They can have bleeding from low platelets. They can have a higher risk of infection if the white blood cell counts are low. Um, I always tell my patients, first talk to your doctor and ask them all the questions about, you know, how should I handle my side effects and my symptoms and so forth. And um, for example, if a patient is anemic, or let me, let me back off, the treatments we are giving for anemia in the lower risk MDS patients, that should help increase the um, or reduce the burden of the anemia, so increase the hemoglobin, so there's more oxygen available to be carried around um, in, in the bloodstream of patients, so that the fatigue should get better. So one of the treatment goals is improving the the anemia. That may take um, a couple of weeks or even a couple of months before we see an effect. So patients are often uh, requiring, especially in the advanced stages, are requiring um, red blood cell transfusions. That's a relatively harmless procedure, and uh, your physician will guide you if you need a transfusion once a week, once a month, every two weeks, or every six weeks. And again, that depends on the, on the stage and the disease and the subtype of this MDS syndrome. There are growth factors, there are hormones to, Im to, to increase your white blood cells. 
They are commonly not routinely given to MDS patients, but they can be sometimes given if the patient has a very severe infection or their white blood cell count is not recovering. I don't give them routinely for my patients because they they are cosmetically good and can help patients, but they're not necessarily attack the disease in the bone marrow, like with those treatments I mentioned earlier. But if a patient needs antibiotics, obviously, if they, if they have an infection, call your doctor or go to your hospital or your local emergency room and um, let your doctor guide your treatment. So sometimes we do need to admit patients for an infection, then they need to be on IV antibiotics. And some patients we do keep on prophylactic antibiotics, although this is not done routinely. And again, this depends how low your blood counts are. Another aspect is it often comes, and we may have a question in the audience, is what about my iron? If I get too many blood, red blood cell transfusions, am I getting iron overloaded? Again, um, the recommendations vary a little bit, but with time, every unit of blood has a lot of iron on board. So and if iron deposits in the blood, um, it can actually lead to complications. So at some point, particularly in patients that may receive a lot of transfusions over many years, and those are typically the low-risk MDS patients, um, we sometimes um, recommend to initiate so-called so iron binding or iron chelating drugs to so try to take some iron out of the of the system of the patients. And then for the different treatments, um, I will not go into the details like how do we manage side effects with lenalidomide, for example, if I'm tired, if I have a rash. Otherwise, it would be too detailed for now. And we can we can go into some of the um, um, question and answer sessions about this. And maybe the last thing I should say is that for patients um, that are on those um, hypermethylating agents, sometimes it's not like with some other cancers or leukemia or some other, um, other solid tumors that after a month or two months, you know actually if you have a response or not. Sometimes we do need to keep on treating patients for four to six months because the drugs and the medications we are giving, they work a little differently. I mentioned they try to switch on the good genes and try to switch off the bad genes in those MDS cells. So generally, we recommend patients um, with azocytia and decidabine to be treated at least for four to six months before the doctor can tell you, well, you have a good response or you don't have a response. And um, with that, I probably would like to close. And um, I don't know, if, Gail, if you have any other comments or Caroline, and we have one more speaker, I know. Oh, this is superb, Dr. Tibbs. Thank you so much. Really a very comprehensive, and I think really um, you really encourage people around some questions that they may want to ask. So I know people are getting their thinking about their questions, and we will be taking questions soon. Um, we do have um, uh, Diana, our next speaker, and then we um, I'll say a few comments, and they're going to take questions. So please start to think about your questions, and um, Ayawa will, um, just for the questions, she'll explain to you how to queue up for questions. You can, we can take as many of your questions as possible. Um, our next speaker is Ms. Diana Bairden. Ms. Bairden is a dietitian with the Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center. And Ms. Bairden is going to address nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Bearden. Thank you, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation addressing nutritional concerns in the presence of MDS. Nutrition and hydration are key to tolerance to treatment, and they also help provide you to, to provide you the energy to do the things that you enjoy. A plant-based diet is most ideal for prevention, during treatment, and during survivorship. 
a plant-based diet translates into having about two-thirds of your plate from a plant-based food, such as a whole grain, fruits, vegetables, nuts, and seeds. Plant-based foods provide antioxidants and phytochemicals. And fresh or frozen are actually the best forms to obtain your plant-based foods in. And then secondly, um, you know, um, when things are frozen, they're picked at their peak um, of um, maturation. They're cleaned, cut, frozen, and so oftentimes people are a little leery about frozen, but they're actually it's actually a great choice um, nutritionally and financially. And the key to um, eating this plant-based food is bringing in a variety of colors. So the more colors you have, the more um, you're inoculating yourself with um, a broader spectrum of um, phytochemicals and antioxidants. The other third of your plate should be from a lean protein source, such as a wild-caught fish. Um, this includes cold water fish, such as halibut, salmon, tuna, sardines. It's fine if they're canned. Um, and then poultry and beans are um, also other options to bring in. Protein is the building block for cell and tissue development, so it's essential that we bring in protein um, into our diet. There might be a need for you to take a supplement or modify your diet based on your unique circumstances. If you are not directed by your health care team to do this, then please do not make any changes until you talk with them. Um, it may seem harmless, but there can be interactions with your therapy, so be sure to communicate with them first. Hydration oftentimes is overlooked, and it seems so important to eat, especially if with any of the treatment that you're going through, if you've lost weight or you're struggling um, with eating enough, so fluids can be on the back burner. But dehydration is actually pretty significant. It can increase the symptoms of nausea, um, and fatigue, it can make you feel dizzy when you're dehydrated, and fluids are anything that is a liquid at room temperature. So this includes water, milk. Um, you know, flavored waters. A general guideline is that most people need between 8 and 10 8-ounce glasses of fluid a day. Um, if you're experiencing side effects, um, keeping a daily food record of what you're eating can be very helpful. It can and will not only make you aware of how often and how much you're actually eating, but it will help, help your health care team better help you. A dietitian can help with providing you the calorie, um, protein, and fluid needs that you need um, and in your unique situation. So please reach out to them um, and your health care team to connect. Um, that's all I have. Thank you for allowing me to be part of today's workshop. I'll pass the line back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Diana. That was excellent, and I know there'll be questions for you. And I just want to say a few words about uh, services you can access from Cancer Care, and then we're going to take your questions. Um, Cancer Care is a national organization, and we provide oncology social work services to people throughout the United States. Um, and we do have some programs that are also accessible to people internationally, like this particular program. Um, so we do offer, um, to the U.S., uh, practical and financial assistance, and we have a copay foundation. We also offer uh, counseling or a chance to talk with one of our oncology social workers about your concerns, both on the telephone and online. You can go to our website and post your question. Actually, anyone in the world can do that, and our oncology social workers will respond to you and, and try to be helpful to you. Now, we also offer support groups. Many people find support groups helpful, and so we have both telephone support groups and online support groups. At the moment, we have 120 online support groups, which means that on many different topics, both for people living with different types of cancers or hematologic cancers, as well as for people, um, for caregivers. 
and um, for young adults and for all different populations. And for those programs, again, you can just go online and register for an online support group, and one of our oncology social groups will reach out to you and describe it with you. So that's very nice. Also, lots of people internationally participate in those online support groups as well. So, um, and we also, of course, have lots of these programs and many publications you can access, and our website is a nice portal to a lot of the information you can access from us. And we do have a helpline as well, and you can simply call that helpline at 1-800-813-4673 or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. And again, that information is will be sent to you when you get your evaluation at the end of the program, so you don't have to worry about writing all this down. You'll be getting all this information at the end of the program. And now we have time for questions. We have a lot of time for questions. I'm going to ask Ayala to bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going to actually see if we can take as many of your questions as possible. If we don't get to your question at the end of the program, I'll explain to you how to get your questions answered. So Ayala. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to move yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star, then one. So we have a question from one of our online participants. I'm going to start with uh, Dr. Robos on this question. Um, and the question is, what common heavy metals are seen with MDS? So it's an interesting question. I think um, one of the major concerns actually is not so much whether the um, heavy metals will cause MDS, but rather the fact that heavy metal toxicity can result in bone marrow features that mimic MDS. So, for example, abnormalities related to mercury and copper um, can actually make the bone marrow morphology look like it's MDS, but actually it might be related um, to toxicity from either heavy metal overdose or actually, heavy, uh, for example, copper deficiency can result in morphologic uh, features that are um, very much um, uh, mistaken for MDS. So I think that often in a pathology report where one is not exactly sure what's going on, there will be mention of things like checking mercury, lead, copper, et cetera, as possible mimickers of MDS. Having toxicity or poisoning from metals then be a causative of MDS is sort of a different, and that would be a, a pretty rare question. Things like um, organic um, uh, arsenic toxicity from contamination of, of water supplies has been linked with um, bone marrow consequences. But I think that um, in general, the, the thing that would be more common, at, at least in the U.S., would be, again, to check and make sure that there is not um, an abnormality that's being mistaken for the diagnosis of MDS. So thank you. And Dr. Tibbs, do you want to add anything? Well, maybe the only thing I think those are exceedingly rare. So I mean, it's I may have seen one one case where it was mistaken and there was some 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 heavy metal. Um, so it's really rare. It is it is being mentioned in the pathology report as part of what doctors think about it. But yeah, as as a, as a patient, I would not hang myself up or think, oh, this has to be this and this, and if I change all the um, plumbing in my house, then I will do better. Unfortunately, it's not. Usually, very often we do not, apart from, from what I mentioned, um, 
exposure to chemotherapy, radiation therapy, so any obvious obvious kind of events and insults to the bone marrow, um, we often don't know where things are coming from in MDS. And also familial is very, very rare, so that's usually not a genetic or inherited disease. So there are some rare syndromes, but again, you know, unfortunately, we do not know where it's coming from, and and um, yeah, that's that's all I would say. Excellent, thank you. Yeah, wonderful, thank you. Great questions and excellent speakers, thank you. Um, and we have a telephone question now. So um, Ayala, the question is from Yvonne B. Your line is now open. Yes, thank you. Uh, I appreciate all the doctors that come on board. We really do love cancer care. My husband has cancer, and you had mentioned that some people that have cancer can wind up getting this. Is that common, and what should we we'd be looking for? Not that we want more trouble, but I've never heard that before, so I'd appreciate if someone could help me with that. Okay, well, thank uh, you sure. for that question. No, oh, Rose. sorry, Carolyn. I get, I, yeah, I can yep. jump in. So I think that um, the most important thing is that while it is true that patients who receive cancer uh, chemotherapy or radiation therapy or a combination of chemotherapy and radiation therapy are at risk for the development of MDS, the most important thing to think about is, of course, treatment of the primary tumor, because you certainly don't want to, you certainly don't want to um, make radical changes in the treatment of one disease while you're worrying about another. That said, there are many types of um, cancers in which the treatment um, might include some decision making about how much additional chemotherapy or radiation is needed. And as some of you may be hearing, diseases like breast cancer and prostate cancer do have questions about what is the actually right number of cycles of chemotherapy or radiation therapy. So we do think about patients um, where the blood counts are not recovering correctly after chemotherapy or after radiation therapy as ones to watch for potential evidence of bone marrow complications. In general, this is a rare complication of cancer chemotherapy. It is not something that I want you to be distracted about in terms of let's hope your husband is getting much better from his chemo treatment. And if it is being given with curative intent, then I'm very happy to hear that. But just to answer your question, what we look for is evidence of blood counts not recovering correctly or remaining abnormal after the cancer-related uh, chemotherapy or radiation has com been completed. And sometimes when quite a bit of time has passed and the numbers still haven't come back to normal, that may actually pr uh, prompt additional evaluation, either from the original treating oncologist or that oncologist may refer you to someone else for further evaluation. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Davis, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I would agree. I mean, this is this is absolutely not. Uh, I didn't want to say this is absolutely not the the the, the common thing to see. We see it, um, you know, on few occasions. It's just something to think about it because usually we get this question, you know, is there anything that brings on my MDS? And most of the time, we we don't know. In the majority of the cases and the patients, we actually do not know what causes MDS. So, and again, absolutely not. The standard of care for any other cancer, a solid tumor or cancer, has to prevail because if, if your doctors recommend that, you know, they have the idea that your husband will and shall be cured with that therapy and the possibility that something later on may happen, you know, that's that's low compared to, to the benefit that he will get from, from his initial treatment. 
Awesome. Thank you. And a question for Dr. Tibbis um, from one of our online participants. Um, too many platelets um, as a problem with um, myelodysplastic syndrome. And again, the question is, is that also a cause? Okay, that's a, that's a very good question. So in, in myelodysplastic syndrome, as Dr. Robert said, it's usually what a, a patient once said it in a very nice way. It's a lazy bone marrow. It's a bone marrow that doesn't make enough of the good, normal, healthy cells. And as I mentioned, this can affect the platelets, the red cells, the white cells, two or all three of those blood cell lineages. There's the opposite disease, which we didn't discuss today, which are called myeloproliferative neoplasm. Myelo, again, white cells, bone marrow syndrome, again, and proliferation means growth or excess growth. So in those conditions, you can have high platelets or high white cells or high um, red cells or a combination of all of these. It's a related disorder, a related disease, but it's not the same. They share some or many of those features with MDS, but they're not the same. And we often, in, in some of those diseases or some of the stages of those diseases, we may treat similarly, but um, very often they have different treatments. Then within the MDS, there is a group of patients or a group of diseases that is called RRST or or similar. It's essentially an MDS that for some reasons there are too many platelets. And there are certain mutations in those genes again. So your doctor can tease it out um, where in the spectrum of an MDS and maybe an MDS that has elevated platelets, the MDS or the, the, the participant is asking about false. It could be an MDS with elevated platelets, or it could also be one of those myeloproliferative diseases or neoplasms, how we call them. And then, you know, several factors, it's, you know, I can't go into detail, or it really depends on the constellation of the blood counts, some of those mutation testing we do and then we find, and then we can narrow it down pretty much these days. And then doing the bone marrow biopsy, looking at the microscope also helps us to narrow it down in those, in those areas. And maybe lastly, I should mention there's one group, small group of which we call the MDS-MPN overlap. Overlap means they have features of both. The MDS, meaning generally not enough blood cells and too few. And maybe, again, in one or two of the other lineages, they have too many of the blood cells. And not the platelets, but you know, the red cells or often also the, the white blood cells. But again, those are few cases within that group, but we see those because it's a spectrum. Well, thank you. Um, and Dr. Robos, do you wish to add anything? Uh, nope, I think that was well covered. Yeah, excellent. Okay. excellent. Well, okay. Um, very comprehensive. Thank you. Um, and we have another question here, and this is for Dr. Robos, um, which I believe we've touched on, but still it appears to be a question here. What chemotherapy is associated with MDS? Um, so I think that um, it, there are there, the answer to this is kind of what the book says and then what the reality is. Um, in theory, almost all chemotherapeutics um, can be associated with uh, with MDS, but there are some that are more likely than others. And it has to do not only with the agent itself, but the duration of therapy and the doses of treatment. So just to be a little bit more broad on this, um, obviously it so happens that uh, a very famous patient of mine um, 
had MDS after cancer-related chemotherapy, and I suspect that some of the questions are coming from the publicity that was surrounding that situation because it certainly brought to everybody's attention that, in fact, there is MDS as a possible complication of cancer-related chemotherapy. Um, again, this doesn't happen in most patients who are treated, but it did happen in a very famous one, so this became an issue uh, that has been discussed very, very extensively. In addition to that, what became clear from many of the um, sort of analyses and discussions um, in the public forums was that it doesn't necessarily have to be chemotherapy that's administered for a type of cancer. So, for example, rheumatology patients who might be on long-term drugs like methotrexate or cytoxin, cyclophosphamide, there are lots of chemotherapy drugs that are used for conditions that aren't necessarily cancer, and the question becomes, well, what about these types of agents? So it's not really possible to give a, uh, a comprehensive list of agents that are associated potentially with bone marrow disease. In addition to that, even for radiation, there has been controversy, for example, that, well, what if you only have seeds for prostate cancer, so low-intensity radiation versus more intense um, radiation that might be applied for other types of tumors. Again, there is probably in any given patient a combination of predisposing genetic features in combination with whatever treatment that they're on. That said, for patients on pretty much any agent of chemotherapy being given for cancer or for rheumatologic disease, whether or not it's in combination with radiation, and I should note in parentheses that if you have concomitant chemotherapy plus radiation therapy, that does actually pose an increased risk. This is something that is in the back of the mind of your treating physician to be looking at blood counts and to make sure that they go to normal. I will also mention that for the hematologic malignancies, just the presence of having, for example, a lymphoma or myeloma, any kind of hematologic malignancy potentially puts you at increased risk for the subsequent development of something else. Now, the last thing I want to do is cause panic by having, again, one worry about the problems of another disease when you're dealing with the first one. So it is absolutely most important to optimize your therapy for the first disease and to not worry about these um, secondary complications um, if possible because you have enough on your plate. But the issue of monitoring blood counts post-treatment is important, and it will be addressed by your treating oncologist, and also subsequently if you're turned out of an oncology practice as cured, it is something that's monitored for years after by your internal medicine doctors to make sure that the blood counts look okay. Excellent. Wow, that's very comprehensive. And uh, Dr. Tibbs, do you wish anything or... Yeah, maybe. I mean, very comprehensive. Thank you. Um, we, we actually looked into that in my previous position at the Mayo Clinic, and I'm now at MOU, but we looked at actually um, what Dr. Roberts just mentioned. What is the frequency or how often does an MDS or an AML, acute leukemia, happen after patients with any kind of autoimmune disease? And we looked at more than 40,000 patients in our database, and we found very few cases. So we do see it, and then as Dr. Roberts said, you know, your internal medicine doctor, your rheumatologist or so may think about it if the blood counts are low, um, and after a couple of weeks or months he may send you, but the, the frequency or how often this happens is really, really low, and we published that in the, the, in, 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 a, 
in a journal our experience there. So yes, we see it, and obviously since you know Dr. Robertson and myself or any kind of MDS center that has a lot of patients seeing, we probably see it more more frequently. But fortunately, it's still pretty rare. And again, you know, if you need those treatments for your Crohn's disease, for your lupus, or whatever. Um, you have to receive them because they give you benefit and the disease themselves may set you up for, you know, other other things. So I would not worry too much. Let your doctor treating you handle it. And then if needed, you know, you will be referred to a hematologist who can then look further into it. And we do not have any tests at this point where we can say, well, this is the patient we're at higher risk or this is the patient at lower risk. Researchers are working on that. They're looking at um, different mutations and maybe is there a general risk of getting more cancer or something else. But we're not there yet um, <clears throat> to, to, to replace any kind of standard of care for what's Excellent. being done. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Um, and we have a question. Um, this will be our last question uh, for um, uh, Dr. Tibbis, um, um, my father has developed joint pain and it's stopping him from doing his everyday activities. Is this normal with MDS and what can he do to help with the pain? Or could you address this in a general way? Joint pain with MDS. Well, that's that's a that's a open question. If I could ask clarification, I would obviously see. I mean, has has your father a what is the what is the um, stage of the MDS? I mean, how advanced is it? How early is it? Um, then the question is, has your father had any other autoimmune diseases, any arthritis or anything like that that he had problems for before? We do know that in some MDS and also in those MDS MPN overlap and related diseases, there could be a higher occurrence of some autoimmune diseases. And sometimes we just see it like this, some joint pain or some, some skin diseases. Um, if your father... So if... With MDS, depending on what stage, maybe it's to keep it broad for everything. It's because we get these questions, you know, can I have a cataract surgery with MDS? Can I have a knee joint evaluation or an arthroscopy? So generally when the disease is not too far advanced and if the blood counts are okay, I would say that most of those procedures um, can happen and he could have a regular evaluation by a rheumatologist or by an orthopedic physician to see what the, the cause of the joint pain is. Is it some, something mechanical? It can be fit, fixed. If his white count is good enough that he's not at higher risk of infection, then the orthopedic doctor could work with a, with a hematologist and you know see, hey, is the white count good enough? The platelets, is the risk of doing any kind of procedure? Is that justified? And then I think it really, you know, have a hematologist work together with the other physicians looking at your father. If there's some autoimmune-associated phenomenon, and we, we do see that sometimes. Again, it's not the rule again. Sometimes treating the MDS, if the MDS deserves treatment, um, can also help. I've seen it help, meaning then because the MDS is something that may do a lot of those other secondary consequences or you know not well-being, so treating the MDS by whatever the stage is may help but not always. And again, you know, having a regular evaluation for, for neo-joint pain, I think it's important. And, and then communicate with the hematologist and how far it can be done based on the stage and, you know, where the MDS stands. Excellent. Thank you. And um, Dr. Robos, do you wish to add anything? Uh, the only additional comment I would make is that um, if the patient um, in this question happened to have been on lenalidomide as the treatment for the MDS, there have actually been um, uh, increased reports of sometimes 
uh, autoimmune or at least um, inflammatory types of responses on that particular therapy. So again, it wasn't included in the question, but it would be of interest to know whether that had been part of the treatment because that might have been in that particular case a little bit more contributory to the symptoms and may then open up, uh, rather than blaming the MDS, it's possible, conceivable, that there would be um, a more treatment-related effect that could then go on to something else. I suppose in general, also depending on where the joint pains were, there can be joint pains that are related to um, cytokine therapies like, uh, for example, things like um, erythropoietic agents like Aranesp or Procrit and um, sometimes for white cell uh, increasing agents, things like Neupogen or related uh, brand names. And there too, again, depending on what joints we're talking about, I think it's important to separate what could be a potentially therapy-related complaint versus a disease-related one. And if we have reason to blame the treatment in this particular case, then um, then the, your father may be eligible for a different MDS therapy, which may not cause the same problem. Well, thank you. Well, I want to thank all of our speakers. This has been a phenomenal call. Um, wonderful uh, speakers, uh, wonderful participants, and wonderful people who've queued up and asked questions on the phone and online. And I know there are still questions in queue, so I want to actually let you all know how to get your questions answered, um, should you have um, and I know many of you do. There are still people in queue that many of you have additional questions. So for those of you who um, really want to get further medical information, of course, your healthcare team is always a wonderful resource for each of you to access. Um, your healthcare team is, of course, they know you the best, and they clearly um, are a wonderful resource for everyone on this call. Um, but in addition to that, I know you all like to often go to other places for information, and so that I'd like to go to credible places. So we always recommend, of course, the National Cancer Institute, um, uh, 1-800-422-6237, or their website, www.cancer.gov. Um, and uh, they actually are a terrific resource. Um, uh, they, are, they have a live chat feature on their website where you can, anyone in the world um, can post a question and they will actually get all the links for you. Their information specialist will We'll look into their database and get you as much information as possible that you need. Um, and um, we also are working with the MDS Foundation, and so they are also a wonderful resource um, uh, to access, and that information will be sent to all of you as well. That's a, a wonderful resource as it specializes only in this particular type of, um, of, uh, 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 this, the, of MDS, so that would be excellent. We have a number of blood cancer organizations, all of which also have information about MDS as well. So that's a great resource as well. Most importantly, of course, as we conclude the program today, we don't want any one of you to feel you're alone in coping with MDS, with any type of cancer. We want you to now know that you're part of a community of support. And for those of you who wish to get additional support, just either practical or financial assistance or counseling services or support group um, services, please do contact Cancer Care. Our oncology social workers are here to help you. They're all trained oncology social workers, and they're here to help you. And we have a number of programs coming up, which might be of interest to you. There's one um, actually um, tomorrow on current perspectives on cancer survivorship, and it sounds like many of you are living with MVS and doing, living with this, so it, it might be a very nice program for you to listen to. Um, it might be very helpful. Um, it's more of a, helping you with some of the concepts of survivorship. 
again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.